the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. God had faithfully dealt with the nation of Israel after the decades of them wandering in the desert wilderness. Now was their time to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. But they were to continue to love God and put God first once they settled into the land. Moses reminds them of their covenant to God and how to love Him supremely. We will see Moses revisit some of the dietary laws as an act of worship unto the Lord as we join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1. Moses spent the first 11 chapters urging the people of God to love him supremely. And that's our theme of of Deuteronomy, loving God supremely. And we show our supreme love for God by our obedience to him. So in chapter 12, after spending 11 chapters urging the people to love God supremely, Moses begins to address how some of God's commands would be applied once Israel settles into the promised land, once they've been victorious and they settle down. Already in the first two chapters after that, we looked at how being in the land would affect Israel's worship and how it would affect how they dealt with idolatry. But today we're going to look at how some of the civil and ceremonial laws would be affected. And while we look at many of these laws, that they don't specifically apply to our behavior, for example, like what to eat or what not to eat, my heart's desire tonight, and may the Lord bring this about, that by studying them, it will show us God's will, God's standard, and God's heart so we can live out His commands to us, the ones that we are to do correctly. So chapter 14, we begin in verse 1, and we begin here with a summary statement that really covers pretty much everything that follows after this as he's dealing with civil and ceremonial laws over the next few chapters. Number one, he says, you are the children of the Lord your God. That's a, an important statement, isn't it? The word there, you are the children of the Lord your God, sets the tone for everything that follows. Every human being wants to belong, to be loved. I know sometimes we push people away. We, I don't need you because we don't want to be hurt again or because we're just selfish and we want to be self-sufficient. But every human being wants to be loved. Every human being wants to belong somewhere. Moses reminds them here that they belong to the Lord. They always have a place of belonging. So they don't need to look to other people for how to live. They're to imitate their heavenly father. They don't need to look to other people for acceptance. They can just rest in the fact that their God has accepted them. Before we get into any of these things, we need to ask the question, do you and I know where we belong? Do we know that I am my beloved's and he is mine? Do we know that? Are we constantly trying to garner acceptance from other people? It's interesting, when we're trying to do that, it affects our obedience, which is how we show God we love him supremely, right? So we need to be content in declaring, I am my beloved's and he is mine, because we are the children of the Lord our God. Once he goes there, he begins to deal with the commandments. And so he deals with laws concerning mourning rituals first. He says, you shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. The word there, cut, it means to make incisions in 
in your skin with a blade as a sign of your mourning. It's interesting when they talk to people who cut these days, you know, particularly young people, they talk about it's a way to release pain. It's a way to, they're in so much emotional pain, they can't express it. They don't know what to do with it. And so they'll cut themselves. And I don't know that by experience. I'm just reading what people who have tried to help folks like that have said these folks have explained. That's not a new thing. Back then when they would experience this pain from the loss of a loved one or a friend, you know, they would cut themselves as a sign of their mourning to put themselves in physical pain so that it would somehow maybe dull the emotional pain. The Lord says, I don't want you doing that. I also don't want you making any baldness between your eyes for the dead. They would shave their foreheads of just the very front of their head as a sign of mourning. Now, hair was a big deal back then. I'm not saying it's not today. Bald is beautiful though. But back then, bald was never beautiful, all right? That's just how it was. You always wanted to have a good head of hair. It was almost a symbol of blessing that God had crowned you in some way. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's how they viewed it, okay? So for you to do something, not just to your hair, but to the front of your hair, was you were trying to communicate something to somebody, or if someone did it to you, it was a mark of great shame. So when you would do this to yourself, it would be like putting yourself in embarrassing situations, bringing emotional pain upon yourselves as a sign of mourning. And the Lord says, don't do that for the dead. There's nothing wrong with mourning, only mourning with no hope. And that idea that there is no answer to the pain that you're experiencing and the heartache you're experiencing is something that God doesn't want us to do. Like Israel, in this, we're to be different. For it says here, the reason they're not to do this is because you are a holy people unto the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. The word they're holy, it means to be unique, set apart, dedicated to God. The God had set them apart. He had made them to be different. He had saved them from Egypt so they would be different. They were his peculiar people. It's a funny phrase and most more modern translations, they don't translate it that way because we don't usually think of peculiar in a positive way. When we say when someone's peculiar, we usually mean they're kind of weird or they have something about them that makes them kind of unique in a way that's not good. But peculiar back then meant something treasured to you, something that was special to you. So when the Lord says, they're his peculiar people. He's saying, they're my treasured possession. They're my treasured people. The Bible of the New Testament calls us a peculiar people as well, a holy people set apart to him because we are his treasured possession. See, the reason I don't need to mourn like that, like the pagans did, is because Jesus loves me. Everything I need is found in him. So instead of dealing with pain my own way, I'm to bring it to him, acknowledging that he's my all in all in that very difficult time. That doesn't mean the pain automatically goes away when you, you know, just call on Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is, is that he's the one that can heal that, even if it takes time. He's the one that can help with that, even if it takes time. Because Israel was God's son, Israel was to be different in how they mourned. They weren't to do it like the pagans did. When they get into Israel, into the promised land, and they see all these various rituals and rites that other people are doing, they're not to imitate it, they're to be different. The second area they were to be different, though, is also in what they ate. Look at verse 3. It starts off again with a summary statement, you shall not eat any abominable thing. Now, the phrase are abominable, it means anything that was forbidden is unclean. This is much shorter than the list in Leviticus 11, and I'm not going to go through all the details of animals and why this and why that. If you really want to know more, get my study on Leviticus 11. It was the most exciting study I've ever done in my life. And so you'll love it. 
But what makes this list different and why it is here is whereas Leviticus just lists all the animals they weren't allowed to eat, Deuteronomy 14, this list here, it actually tells them some specific animals that are okay to eat. And so it says here, you should not eat any abominable thing, but these other beasts, verse 4, which you shall eat. And he starts with land animals. He says, you can eat the ox, the sheep, the goat, the heart, which it's a stag, it's a larger kind of a deer. Then you have the roebuck, which would be like a, a gazelle. Then you have here, he says, you're allowed to eat the fallow deer, which is just a smaller kind of deer. You're allowed to eat the wild goat and the pygarg. I want a pygarg for a pet. Pygarg is just an antelope. It's an old King James word for an antelope. And the wild ox and the, I don't even know how to pronounce this, chamois? I don't know. But chamois, chamois, it's just a red-haired mountain sheep. These guys were a little bit feisty, which is why they would not be domesticated and used for like other sheep would be. And so he says, you can eat those two. And then he, after he lists a few, he says, you can also eat every beast that parts the hoof and cleaves the cleft into two claws. So in other words, in the middle, there's a groove in there. You can do that, but they've also got to have something else. They have to also have to chew the cud. Among those beasts, you can eat those. And that's the main rule. So he just gives a few animals here, but that's the main rule. If it's got a cloven foot and a cloven hoof, and it chews the cud, chewing the cud is where it regurgitates its food for better digestion, okay? It's funny that the same word for chewing the cud in the Hebrew is the word that is said to meditate. And remember we see in Psalm 1 where it says, blessed is a man who meditates on God's word day and night. It means you chew on it for a bit, and then you let it settle, and then you bring it back up again, chew on it a bit, let it settle. And then you bring it back up again, chew it a bit. Everybody needs to go to the restroom now, don't they? <laughs> but that's the idea. These were the animals that were okay. But if, if they only met one qualification, if they chewed the cud, but they had a full hoof, no, no cloven thing in the middle, you can't eat them. Or if they had a cloven hoof, but they didn't chew the cud, they ate and they just swallowed it right away, no bueno. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat of them which chew the cud, or of them that just divide the cloven hoof. And then he gives some examples as the camel and the hare. I don't think I'd want camel anyway. And the coney, for they chew the cud, but do not divide the hoof. Therefore, they are unclean to you. If you ever go to uh, Israel with us, when we go to En Gedi, you'll see lots of conies. They're the most interesting creatures I've ever met, and I'm glad I'm not allowed to eat them. Verse 8, also the swine. So here's the kosher thing most of us know about the Jewish eating laws. Because it divides the hoof, but it does not chew the cud. So it is unclean to you. Not only can you not eat it, you shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their dead carcass. So for land animals. They don't meet those qualifications. It's not that you can't just eat them. You're not allowed to have contact with them if they're dead. So if you go to Israel, even today, here and there, you'll see pig carcasses on the side of the, like wild pig. Nobody cultivates them because they're not allowed, but you might see wild pig on the side of the road and they just let them die and rot there because they're not allowed to touch them. Uh, both Jew and Muslim alike don't touch them. They're unclean. So they won't, they won't, they certainly would not eat them. You might be saying, well, why those qualifications? Why the cloven hoof and the chewing the cud? Well, the answer comes at the end of this section, so we'll wait until then to give the full answer. But I do want to suffice it to say that for, for now, there is no mention of health concerns in these restrictions. There's no mention that God doesn't say this because they're not healthy for you. That's been a traditional explanation sometimes when people say, why did God tell them not to eat this stuff? Nowhere in the scripture you find that health is a reason that God gave the dietary laws to the Jewish people. Nowhere. It would be wrong to impose that interpretation upon the text, okay? So I just want to leave you there for now. Now, sea animals, verses 9 and 10. We don't get any specifics. We just get the general rule. These you shall eat of all that are in the waters, all that have fins and scales. Them you can eat. So fish are good, but no shrimp, no lobster. I'm glad I did not live back then. And whatsoever does not have fins and scales, you may not eat. It is unclean unto you. Remember, unclean does not mean unhealthy. It just means it would make them ritually unclean. Verses 11 through 20, we get flying creatures. Of all clean birds you can eat, 
But these are they of which you shall not eat. And again, I went through this list of what these are in Leviticus 11, so I won't do it here. But it says the eagle, the ossifrage, the osprey, the gled, and the kite, and the vulture after his kind, so any kind of vultures off limits. Every raven after his kind, the owl, the night hawk, the cuckoo, and the hawk after his kind, the little owl, the great owl, and the swan, and the pelican, and the gyre eagle, and the cormorant, and the stork, because they've got to bring babies. And the heron after her kind, and the lapwing, and the bat. And then it mentions verse 19, not only flying animals, but flying insects. Every creeping thing that flies is unclean unto you. They shall not be eaten. Again, this is not a reference to health. It would make them ritually impure. They could not worship in the tabernacle, so they were not allowed to eat any of these flying animals. Verse 21, we get the final thought here. You shall also not eat of anything that dies of itself. You shall give it unto the stranger that is in your gates that he may eat, or you may sell it unto an alien. For you are a holy people unto the Lord your God. So here we see also that they're not allowed to eat anything that dies of itself. Why is that? Again, it's not a health concern. It's not, well, you don't know how it died. It might have been really sick and make you sick. No. Contact with any dead thing as a Jew would make you ritually unclean. If it didn't die because you killed it for the meat, then you couldn't just eat it here. If it died of itself, you couldn't touch it or do anything with it. So you were to just leave it there because you didn't want to become unclean. However, if it died of itself, you can give it unto the stranger, which would be a foreigner, or you can give it, sell it to an alien, which would be another word for a foreigner. Both are references to foreigners, but the first one where it says a stranger there, it refers to a Gentile who is a permanent resident in Israel. They've decided to live there and follow the Lord. The alien would be one who's just passing through. They're not a permanent resident there. So either of them, they can eat it, but you can't. That these verses have nothing to do with health is clear by the fact that God is cool with giving it to non-Jews. You know, it's not like God's going, you guys can't eat it, but I don't care if they die. Give it to them. Not at all. That's not the case at all. So there's no way this can be about health, which brings us to the real reason for the dietary laws. Here it is. He says, for you are a holy people unto the Lord your God. Israel's diet would set them apart from other nations and give them an opportunity to talk about their different God. How come you guys don't eat pig, man? Bacon's good. And they would say, well, our God told us not to. Man, you've got a different kind of God. We do. Let me tell you about them. They were supposed to be a light to all nations. And these dietary laws were one of the ways that God made them different to provide an opportunity for them to talk about their different God. Because the pagans, the gods they worship, were nothing like this God. They weren't personal. They didn't love their followers. And they certainly didn't rescue their followers like the Lord did them out of Egypt. This was an opportunity for them not to be healthier, but to share about their awesome God with people who would not know what a God like that was. We carry this over to the New Testament, and Jesus affirms that the dietary laws had nothing to do with health. For he says in chapter 11 of Matthew 15, it is not that which goes into the mouth which defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth. This is what defiles a man. It's interesting, after Jesus said this, he knew that really upended people. And so the disciples said, "Uh, Jesus, you really offended the Pharisees with this. I mean, like, they are mad. Like, how could you say something like that? I mean, we've got all these laws here. And Jesus goes, you've missed the point of the laws. (laughs) It's not so you can just have all these little rules and stuff and go, I did all the rules, I'm good. Everything was designed to show that they were different, to be a light and a testimony to their different God. And they had missed the point. So Jesus, he wipes it out and he goes, there's nothing bad about this food. It doesn't defile you at all. God set that rule because he wanted you to be different. And so for us, we're to show we're different by our moral conduct. It's that which comes out of a man that defiles himself. 
So if you need more evidence that what you eat does not make you spiritual or unspiritual, there would be those who would have you believe that that was God's diet, and if you're not doing that diet, then you're in sin or you won't be healthy, and do not let anyone do that. They're selling you something. But in Colossians 2.16, it says, Let therefore no man judge you in food or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days. These were Jewish feasts, which are just a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Jesus fulfilled all those Old Testament rituals, all the Old Testament laws. Now he's the substance. I don't need to go to a shadow. If my kids come to me, a lot of times, especially at night, you'll see their shadow kind of walking down the hall. And then somebody's coming, somebody's still awake, you know, and they come in. I don't talk to the shadow. I talk to the substance. I talk to the person. So why would we go back to the shadow if we've got the substance right in front of us? Holiness still applies. We're still a holy people. Like Leviticus says here, we are a holy people, but the holiness doesn't apply to us in keeping dietary laws. We are holy by our conduct, as Jesus said, that which comes out of a man. Now, there is one more little law here. It mentions right here at the end. He says, you shall not seethe, boil a kid, a baby goat, in his mother's milk. All right? Not mixing meat and dairy is one of the most well-known kosher laws. Cheeseburgers, off limits, right? I may have that wrong. I think I've got that correct, but I may have it wrong. But that is not what this command is talking about, not mixing dairy and kosher. There was a pagan practice back then that a lot of times when they would kill an animal and they'd eat it, that's why they would drink the blood. They would believe you would be taking the spirit of that animal and the powers of that animal would be infusing you with power to be a better hunter or a better warrior or a better, a more productive birth mother. These were things that they believed. And so there was a pagan practice where they would think you could actually intensify the power of the meal and give yourself a double life force if you combined two related animals, like a mother and a baby, and you cooked them in the milk or something like that. And so the idea here is this is a pagan thing, again, that Israel was not to imitate. They were to avoid all pagan rituals like this. The idea, again, is they were to be different. That's the whole purpose of these dietary laws. Verse 22, we get to how the rules for tithing would apply once they were in the land. He says in verse 22, the general rule still applies. You shall truly tithe, which means to give a tenth of all the increase, your revenue, your gain, your income, of your seed, in other words, your harvest, that the field brings forth year by year. So there's no exceptions. You're to do this every single year that you bring in a harvest. You are to give a tenth of whatever you gain from it to the Lord. And verse 23 tells you how you do that. You shall eat before the Lord your God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there. When they were in the desert, the tabernacle was always in the middle of the camp and they were all camped around it. Again, you can look at numbers to see how they camped around that. I think it's numbers chapter four or five, somewhere around there. It talks about how they were camped. But when they would get to the promised land, they would be all spread out. So the tabernacle, the Lord would say, hey, I want it here at this point. Now move it here, he would tell the priests. It would move to different places. It didn't have a permanent place that it would stay. And so he says, hey, listen, when you bring your tithe, go wherever the tabernacle is at the time, and then you're going to eat your tithe before the Lord your God. The tithe of your corn and of your wine, of your oil, and the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks. And why would they do that? That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Now this is interesting because it shows us that giving your tithe was to be a special occasion occasion of worship. You would gather up all your tithes, just for demonstration. If you brought in a hundred ears of corn, you would take 10 of them and you'd load them up. You and your whole family would come down to the tabernacle and you would celebrate there at the tabernacle God's faithfulness in providing for you through this offering of the 10 that you had there. And you, your loved ones, you'd eat some, the priest would eat some, and God would eat some. The idea of cooking on the altar, that's the part God would eat. And then any leftovers would go to the Levites who were serving there at the tabernacle to take to their families. It was an act of worship. It wasn't just something that you did, but you would have to actually leave your place and you would bring it down and then you'd throw a big party. Now, again, 
then you'd have more, hopefully, than just 100 corn stalks. You'd hopefully have a lot of different things. And so it would usually be a massive offering that you'd bring down from your crops. And, and you'd do it whenever you did the harvest. And you would have this big celebration. Now, why was tithing so important for an Israelite? It says that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. That you would have it in your heart to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Fearing God just means I love what he loves and I hate what he hates. Coming down to the tabernacle, bringing your offering and saying, this is my tithe, turning it into an act of worship, you were saying to God, Lord, all your commandments are important to me. My whole life, I give it to you. I want to love what you love, hate what you hate. I want to live my life your way. That sounds like a big deal. And that's what it was. I heard someone say once that how a person approaches their possessions tells a story. I think it's true. A lot of times you can learn a lot about somebody about how they deal with their money. The person who isn't generous or charitable usually struggles believing God is good and generous. They usually think God is holding back. The person who consumes everything for themselves usually believes sacrificing for God, doing what he asks you to do when it costs you something, it's not worth it. But the person who is generous, the person who tithes regularly, usually has a lot more peace and trust in God for their finances. Just what I've observed over the years. You might be saying, well, this is the same law that we heard before. Why is he repeating it? You said these are special because it matters when they get into the land. Well, being in the land would create some unique challenges. So in verse 24, he now addresses that. He gives the general law, but now here's what you do when you're in the land. He says, and if the way be too long for you, in other words, the trip to the tabernacles, too long for you so that you're not able to carry it. If you're you know, living in an agrarian society like these folks were, and you've got a big, huge, massive haul of grain or whatever the crop is, if the tabernacle's so far away, it may not be good by the time you get there. And so you might be thinking, how am I supposed to transport it all the way from up here down there and have it not rot or go bad or be destroyed in the trip? He says, well, if that's the case, or if the place be too far from you, which the Lord your God shall choose to set his name there when the Lord your God has blessed you, well then, verse 25, you shall turn it into money. You will sell it. But what's interesting is you can't send or bring the money to the priest. You can't go, here's my tithe in the mail and send it in the mail. You had to still come down with that money. And when you got there, he didn't just give Give the money to the priest. Look at verse 25. You shall bind up the money in your hand, and then you shall go unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose, wherever the tabernacle is. And you shall bestow that money for whatever your soul, King James says, lusts after. We usually think of lust in a negative way. This is not a negative use of the word. It just means what you desire or crave. In other words, if you preferred sheep tail to corn, but corn was what you were supposed to tithe, but it couldn't get there because it was too far, you'd sell the corn. You didn't have to come down to where the tabernacle was and buy a bunch of corn to give. You would come down and you go, I like sheep tail. And you'd buy a bunch of sheep tail with however much the same amount of money could afford. And then you'd offer that to the Lord and have a big sheep tail festival. And there it says, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and all your family, your household. Now, why was it so important to come? Why couldn't they just send it in? Because God didn't need their money. God wasn't after their money. He was after their gratitude. He was after their trust. So it wasn't just a box to check off. It was a celebration. It was an act of worship. This is why the New Testament said that God loves what kind of a giver? A cheerful giver. It's an act of gratitude. It's an act of worship. It's a celebration. God loves a cheerful giver. And so I would ask you tonight, do you give generously and cheerfully with, the gratitude, with gratitude for all that God's done for you? Can I say to you, if you're just writing the check or throwing the cash into the bag, you're missing the point? You're missing the point. Don't miss the point. Let's not be people who miss the point. Let's worship God in all these ways. And I'm not saying you can't mail the check in or I'm not saying you can't drop in the box. That's not my point. My point is though, however you give here, make it an act of worship. 
every three years, you actually wouldn't have to come to the tabernacle because God wanted to ensure that all the local ministers were provided for too. Look at verse 27, because that's what the tithe would go for, to provide for, not only celebrate, but provide for those who were serving the Lord at the tabernacle. But not every Levite served at the tabernacle. There were too many of them. So verse 27, he says, and the Levite that is in your gates, you shall not forsake him, for he does not have a part or inheritance with you. So at the end of three years, you will bring forth all the tithe of your increase that same year, and you'll lay it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no part nor inheritance with you, and then also here it mentions the stranger, the foreigner, and the fatherless, the orphans, and the widow, which are within your gates, they can come and shall eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. You know, in the desert, the Levites, their various camps, they all surrounded the tabernacle. They were all right there. But once Israel would go into the promised land, the Levites, they didn't get their own possession. When they would take lots to say, okay, who gets this tract of land? Okay, that goes to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Who gets this tract of land? Oh, that goes to Issachar. When they would do that, the Levites, they didn't get any tract of land. The Levites would be scattered throughout all the 12 tribes in order to teach and instruct them in God's law. They would be all throughout the 12 tribes. So they wouldn't have any land that they would be working and trying to make a profit on. Their job was to assist in the tabernacle probably a few weeks out of every year, and then they would serve the local people on a regular basis, teaching them and instructing them in God's law. When they're not working in the tabernacle, how would they and their families be provided for? And God says it would be by this third-year tithe. So the first two years, your tithe would go to the tabernacle. Every third year, you'd give it to the local ministers there in your gates, in your city. I love it here because he says, don't forget them just because they aren't at the tabernacle doing the big job. They're still serving you by teaching you God's law. So make sure you take care of them. As you can imagine, this would be a ton of food. So this also served as an addition to Israel's welfare system. Israel's general welfare system worked like this. When you were out harvesting in the field, if you dropped something, you could not pick it up. You had to leave it there for the poor. And they would have to come and get it, okay? They didn't come to them. You didn't gather it for them. They would have to come and get it. And we see an example of that in the book of Ruth, where she's out gleaning. She's picking up the stuff that's been dropped. Shows you how much Boaz liked her because he told the guys, he said, make sure you drop a little bit extra for Ruth. He wanted to make sure she was taken care of. That was their general general welfare system, okay? But obviously, that may not meet every need. So every third year, you would bring your tithe to the gates of your city, and all the poor, all those who were less fortunate, they could come, and they would be provided for through that generosity. And when they were generous like this, God's blessing, he says, would rest on the work of their hands. As people characterized by loving God and putting Him first, we ought to be the most merciful and generous people. People that are distinct and different because we know and understand God's love towards us. A heart that truly longs to see God glorified and lifted high is willing to give to others liberally and cheerfully, for this is how God gave us His grace and mercy. We are peculiar people. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m.